episode 150, Elective Surgeries in 2020 and Telehealth. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we hear Dr. Michael Verdon's perspective. Join 2017 and 18 Podcast Awards nominated host and best selling author on Amazon as we get a behind the curtain look at all types of doctor and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Don't adjust your stereo. You heard correctly. 150 episodes. Wow. Now, honestly, this should have happened in 2019. However, I had some cancellations and it didn't happen. And then I took a break. But we are back. we got a few more minisodes coming out as well as a few more interviews. Doing something different this year, if you haven't noticed. We're just going to put them out when I finish them. Record them, edit them, put them out. And this is wild times. We're in April 2020 in the middle of a worldwide social distancing, self-quarantining, coronavirus, COVID-19 environment. And the guest, Dr. Michael Verdon, is a spine surgeon, osteopath fellow. And he's an independent doctor, which means he doesn't work for like a corporation. And so he was able to pivot quickly with telehealth. So we're going to go over what does that look like, how to do it, perks, a couple hindrances, but also right now, elective surgeries. I mean, spine surgery, sure, there's some cases that are like mandatory, we got to get this done. But a lot of procedures, like what his specialty is, are minimally invasive, 23 hours or less in a hospital um, type of procedures. And his motto is find the pain generator. So how are the hospitals dealing with elective-based surgeries? What are their role in the uh, pandemic that is going on? Are they expected to run ventilators and become the go-to when they normally wouldn't even be dealing with pulmonary issues? So all those types of things are going to be answered today. Very, very excited to be at 150 episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for being a part of the program each week. If you're interested in a telehealth webpage, I try to do a story brand version. So if you do drjustintrosclair.com slash virtual visits, you'll see you know a layout um, explaining what telehealth is, why you would use it, the whole marketing part. As always, the China book is still out on Amazon. And actually, the No Needle Acupuncture book is now on Amazon, Kindle and print. So that's something new that I released maybe two weeks ago. A Doctor's Perspective is not officially sponsored by anyone. So if you really love what we're doing, head over to .net slash support. We got one-time financial supports, monthly packages where you can get the books included. If you're getting some value and you want to give back at all, greatly appreciated. All right. All the show notes and the transcript can be found at a doctorsperspective.net slash 150. Let's go. Hashtag behind the curtain. Live from Germany in Dayton, Ohio. Today on the show, we have got a spine surgeon because we're going to talk about all kinds of things with the coronavirus and elective procedures and all these different things that are on the doctor's minds and our hearts and our wallets. Uh, it's a very important conversation, I think. So welcome to the show, Dr. Michael Verdon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You betcha. And everyone, if you hear an echo on my end, I apologize. I am trying to still figure out <laughs> this new setup for a doctor's perspective. But let's just jump in with the, the simple fun. Who are you? What do you do? And, uh, and then we'll jump into the, the real questions, okay? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Mike Burton. I'm a neurosurgeon. I live in Dayton, Ohio. 
primarily been doing only spine surgery for the past three years now. I have a background, I have a business degree from Loyola Marymount University about a thousand years ago. Uh, and after that, I went and got a master's degree in physical therapy. So I was a PT first before I went and became a, a surgeon. I uh, got interested in neurosurgery as a student, um, trained at a pretty high volume place in Detroit, Michigan, basically focused now on the minimally invasive spine or motion preservation uh, with a bent towards outpatient surgery, 23 hours stay. That's awesome. So not a lot of the spine fusions just going to be the things that can, you know, like you said, minimally invasive. I do. Fusions are, uh, so the biggest trick is um, what's indicated, right? So if there's too much motion, you really got to fuse it. If someone who's got, a, you know, a spondyloesthesis laminate, that doesn't work. So you have to pick the right surgery for the right patient at the right time. Sometimes it's fusion. Sometimes it's something smaller. Uh, treat the patient's symptoms, not, um, you know, your bank account or whatever that is. I love that. How, okay, so PT first. Yeah. How does that translate into uh, you deciding when someone needs surgery or like what, what to recommend? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I actually think it helps me um, now. I had to forget all that stuff to become a resident and get through residency. And actually, that kind of got my way a little bit. I really got interested in spine surgery because I was suspicious. Uh, I saw a lot of patients as a therapist not get better, actually get hurt. And I was suspicious this thing, spine surgery, didn't work for people. Mm. And I was out to, you know, figure that one out myself. And I noticed that um, patients, if they had the right surgery, got better. As long as the post-operative pain goes away. So for me, now I'm lucky I live in a community where we have a lot of great therapists who do a lot of great manual therapy. And if I'm not really sure what the pain generator is, I send them off to therapy and actually chiropractic care work on people to help me work out the musculoskeletal problems. And if it's not nerve root related, ridiculous, that's persistent. Surgery is usually indicated. So my whole philosophy and most, most surgeons I've met really it's the defining the pain generator is what the biggest thing is. And um, I think there's a lot of musculoskeletal medicine that uh, really can help me determine what, who and what needs surgery and what does not. Right. Especially if you've gone through a, a physical therapy program that you know, yeah. like, and trust and a chiropractor who's doing what they do, you're like, right. you're still not better. We've narrowed down a lot. Right. I feel like um, the, the, the people around me make me better, right? So the patients who go and get good quality spinal-based rehabilitation, either from chiropractic care, I'm a DO, so osteopathic care too, mm -hmm. or PT, joint mobilization, if those people get better without me, in some ways it just helps me because I'm not operating with people I can't help or I'm not being fooled by things that can't be treated with surgery. You know, So um, if I try to go from a very focused, anatomically driven treatment module with a diagnosis up front first, mm -hmm. uh, then I'm usually uh, better off. So my attitude is I try to determine the pain generator first and then develop a treatment plan second, You know, um, not the other way around. Well, I definitely hear from patients, they're super excited whenever they go to a, a surgeon of any kind and they're like, hey, he said, not yet. No surgery yet. Some, it's funny. Some patients, yes. Some patients, they want to just be fixed. And so it's, it's challenging because I'll see them and I'll say, hey, we need to do therapy or a pain injection. And they'll say, doc, I've already done that. It doesn't work. And my answer is, where did you go? What did you have done? And if it really wasn't directed at the problem. Um, then I tell them you have to reevaluate. I mean, in all of our professions across the board, we have people who are really uh, pro, uh, 
problem driven, meaning they want to solve problems and then other people who are kind of going through the motions, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, in all across all spectrums of life, you know, you see that. And so I just try to find like minded individuals that do things that are not in the same discipline. So pain docs, chiropractors, therapists that want it, you know, and we yeah. kind of refer to each other. You know, I can do this. You can do that. Why don't we work together? So we all get to do more of what we're really trained to do. That's very good. I know I could probably do another 20 minutes of just picking your brain on that as a chiropractor, trying to develop these relationships because you're obviously a person that we want to have on our referral list. And I'm sure the same for you. We want, you want to be on our list of, Hey, you can't fix them, send them. But we're going to, we're going to table that for a little while. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it was on a LinkedIn post. We saw each other. We were commenting on somebody's thread and it was really interesting about elective surgeries in general and right now, as everybody knows, there's a lot of doctors, all chiropractic, PTs, everybody's kind of just shutting down. We're not right. essential. Right. It comes to say is, well, what is considered an elective surgery and is it postponable? Right. What are your thoughts just generally on that before we dive deeper? So that's a great question. And I've been pretty pragmatic about that. You know, um, so for me as a neurosurgeon, I'm lucky because everything potentially could be you know, non-elective if I really want to push the, but a lot of things are chronic and stable and um, can be managed with, for me, with patients, primarily if the patients can alter their symptoms by position or activity and tell them, you know, you need to try to hold off on this at the moment. If they have acute progressive pain, usually neurologic dysfunction, uh, you know, foot drop, uh, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Spinal cord compression, myelopathy, those, those, those are no longer, I can't wait. I don't know when they're going to, so in Ohio, we stopped operating uh, about the 15th of last month. Wow. So Ohio is one of the first states um, to aggressively just ban uh, elective surgery. And so we, we had to talk to people and could they be managed with oral medication, epidurals for the time being, which has been stopped as well. Um, and then we would just kind of hold off. And a lot of people, it was, their activity level was making them more symptomatic. So if they could mod, modify their activity levels to, to, to kind of modulate their symptoms, I would say do that. I also looked at patients who were over about 70 basically and said, you know, do you really feel like this is necessary for you right now? That being said, I did a surgery yesterday. Um, I have one coming up in a week or so here. In Ohio, we have – well. The American College of Surgeons put out some guidelines for us, and then each individual facility is determining by committee who goes to surgery and who does not. It sounds scary, but if you have a clinical rationale as to why you're doing the surgery, in backed up by documentation and imaging findings, it's usually okay. And that being said, it's a little, you know, it's weird being in the aisle where there's no one around, you're the only one, it's very quiet. So I don't think it's just a question. Right. I mean, heart surgery is typically, you know, one of those things that's, uh, you right. need to have it, you need to have it. Right, exactly. exactly. You need to get your uh, L5 taken care of. I mean, maybe maybe we don't. Or is there a real concern in those facilities versus like a hospital? Because, you know, I think a big hospital, I think, oh, man, if there's 25 people in there, is, is the whole hospital contaminated kind right. of or what? So when, we, when this came out, my first thought was, why can't ASCs be used to help with this? And, and they, the ASCs quickly within 24 to 40 hours said, we're, we're not going to do it. So they, they completely shut the doors down. Then it became, should we get to uh, one or two facilities? And so in our, my the town I live in, the hospital systems are 
isolating the patients on one or two floors and one or two buildings. So they're trying to keep clean and infected patients completely apart. Uh, the surgery I did in the hospital I had yesterday, they have a whole floor that's locked down that no one can get in or out of. So there's really no way for people to get cross or very minimal way for people to get cross-contaminated. I think you're trying to keep traffic flow low. So I had to go through the front door with everybody else to get my temperature checked and all that stuff, hmm. which is all good. You know, I mean, there's, you know, although one of the hospitals here in town, they found out people were trying to sneak in through the side door and, and people just don't really get it. I think there's a, there's a real sense for, you know, that's, this is for the, for whatever kind of person. And, and the, the, obviously this virus is not really discriminating amongst people, places, time, socioeconomic status, parts of the hemispheres, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, it's an equal opportunity offender across all spectrums. And I think it kind of is a little humbling. You know, it doesn't really care who you are and what you do, uh, yeah. male, female, socioeconomic status, what religion you belong to, what political party, what tax bracket. It, it, it's an, so there's just a lot of not understanding what is actually going on. At the same time, people get sick and I work in healthcare and it's hard for me to sit by and watch patients suffer from stuff that could be easily treatable, uh, you have to ask yourself, in, if, are the gloves and mask I'm using going to be one less opportunity to help someone else down the road in a couple of months? We had a patient who had a fracture and she wanted a kyphoplasty. She keeps calling the office and I keep telling her, can't do that. I mean, it's just not, there's another treatment option available to you. Mm -hmm. um, and she doesn't seem to understand that. And I'm going to probably have to have a discussion along the lines of, would you want me to let your child die because you needed, you wouldn't wear a brace or you wouldn't change your behavior. And unfortunately, sometimes you need to be that direct with people because, you know, that's what happened in Italy. They had to avoid treating folks. Um, and it, that's, we're not used to doing that kind of stuff. It becomes a very, but this is a different time and place. So the conversation yeah. could be different. Do the hospitals on the floors, is there a way to, with the air conditioning systems and the, and the airflow, are those like self-contained per floor? No. So though they make negative flow rooms, right, for really – so in the past, for a hospital in the United States, we would have certain kinds of flow rooms. But those are rooms, and those are isolated rooms. It's one or two rooms in a whole hospital. If you have a 1,000-bed hospital, 20 rooms will be that way. Wow. So, No. Yeah, it's not that way. This has more to do with just, just wash your hands. You know, just don't touch, don't sneeze on anybody. Just don't touch. I mean, that kind of stuff. Right. Basic, basic hygiene. That you know, history has a way of teaching us all over again, all the time. And I, this is one of those things. I mean, this is this. In some ways, it looks a lot similar to what the Spanish flu looked like. You know, neither you or I were alive then, but right. uh, I think this is very, very similar. And I think it's going to get people's attention in a way that they don't, they did, they would choose to do again if they could, you know? Yeah. I just, sometimes I wonder, we've had a few outbreaks in the past 10 years and I just wonder if we're trying to correct from the wrongs we've done before, like, oh, we didn't handle it that serious. And now it's, we're taking it seriously. And then I wonder what happens to the economy. And then three years from, we get another new virus, what they do then. And that's a lot of speculation, but right. So some some the beautiful thing about what we have right now compared to everything else is the amount of information, right? So this platform that you and I are talking on right now didn't really exist the last time H one N one came around. It, you know, some people say that COVID nineteen is this is the third time it's circling the earth. You know, it, it's gone around. I feel like a lot of 
it made this may get our people's attention, but you know, I, I don't know. I remember 2008 pretty, I was not really, I was in residency, not starting my career yet. And I felt like I was lucky that I was sheltered in a training environment. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of people have forgotten that <laughs> I'm looking at some stuff today about mortgage rates in the States are probably, there's going to probably be a significantly high foreclosure rate. That means that people overborrowed again, and this is just 10 years later. So we have a very short term memory problem culturally in the West. I'm not talking about anybody else, but in the West, we don't remember anything. My wife is Chinese and we were talking about, you know, they shut down the whole country or whatever for like a month. And I was like, dude, in America, that, that could break a lot of people because it's going to be longer than a month. We know it's going to be like a 60 or 90 day situation when it comes yeah, out. So in the States, it's scary because you can see people not really preparing for a longer haul. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they're going to try to give people some money, but it's how are you with cash? How are you with invested in your own personal finances? Mm -hmm. um, and how leveraged are you? I think it's going to be pretty profound. The changes that are going to come around afterwards are going to be pretty significant. I think technologies like this are going to bring us all closer together. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. This is a very, very interesting time. So I'm not really sure how it's all going to play out. Right. And I want to talk to you about the telehealth component. But before I do, I have some, I have some questions. I'm kind of like looking over here to, to see what we've hit and whatnot. I've seen some concerned nurses, you know, especially nurses, doctors on the front line treating this. And they're really concerned about, I got to go to work and then I got to come home to my family. And I don't really want to do either one of those. What? Yeah. But that's like, that's their calling. That's their job. Like, are they able to just say, Hey, you know what? I'm done. I'm, if I have to quit, whatever I got to do, I just, it's not worth the risk to me and right. my family. It's time to be selfish. How do we wrestle with that? So I have a friend of mine who's, so I'm an independent physician and I was employed until about a year ago. So I left employment a year, about a year and a half ago. And I, I was trained by independent physicians and I was actually got the look of shame by taking a job from a corporate perspective that was really looked down upon. Hmm. And I came to a town where there was a lot of independent docs. And one of my friends who's an older doc who's very successful was a big business, private practice. He said, you know, when he got into training, it was a calling. You went into medicine as a calling. And he said, then it became like a profession, you know, and he goes, now it's just a job. And I've seen a lot of stuff posted recently about I'm not going to put my family at risk. And, you know, I mean, I'm a neurosurgeon. I'm not. Am I running into the ED to take care of COVID patients? Am I going to work in the ICU? I, I don't want to do that if I don't have to. And I probably wouldn't do that because that's not what I feel like I'm called to do. But when it just becomes a job, you're pretty much not really committed and you're going to wrap wrap it up. I've seen that in the last five or six years. Yeah. My shift's over. I got to go. And people get sick all the time. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, you know, as a physician, I can't turn it off. You know, that's just the way I was trained. We were trained to respond. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, to me, that's somewhat the socialization of medicine. And there, this is a, just a symptom of people saying, no, not on, not on my watch. The question is, each individual's got to answer to them for themselves. Is this a calling? Is this a profession? Or is this just a job? And if it's just a job, then yeah, don't, don't put your family at risk in harm's way. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like if your child doesn't have significant risk factors, i.e. asthma or pulmonary problems, really, 
I, I think your risk is kind of low. That's what the statistics bear out. If you know, if you're obviously you need to be careful about elderly family that you're around. You know, some people are not going home. They're staying at a some place close to their facility. So I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying everyone has to ask that question and answer it for themselves. Right. But that's the state of medicine, at least in the West. I don't know anywhere else, but it seems that way to me. And a, and a follow-up, in a sense, neuros, orthos, dermatologists, renal docs. Quite frankly, you may not have very much ventilator experience yeah, since you residency. Yeah, you don't want me running your vent. I'm going to kill you quickly. I mean, I have no experience. And, and I feel like, am I doing you more harm than good? No, right. I don't think it's worth it. You know, if you have a problem that I can, I'm trained to handle. I spent from the age of basically 25 to 40 taking care of musculoskeletal problems and learning how to operate the nervous system. So I shouldn't come to you for diabetes help? Probably not. <laughs> I can open up a book and figure it out, but pro- right. I'm probably not going to, maybe I'll get lucky, but anybody can read what's on the internet and what to do. So that's the other part of it too. And there's a lot of people, oh, well, now you should get retrained to address this problem. And I'm kind of sitting there thinking, did you pay my loans when I was getting trained? I mean, so there's a lot of people are speculating what other people should do. And you just need to do what's in your own heart and follow through on that. Yep. This is a very non-judgmental podcast we're having right here because this is just... Crying. We just got to take care of yourself, I think, right. and, and and where you're at. Like you said, everything you said, I don't need to repeat it. I just, I agree with you. Right. You just have to be smart for your family, for yourself. And right. Nobody's well. People will judge you. There is that. This is a temporary problem. You don't need to make it permanent, mm-hmm. right? So we're gonna get through this. Um, it's gonna look different on the other end, but I don't. You know, I've had to learn in my life. It's not my job to fall on other people's swords. Everybody's got to be responsible for themselves. And speaking of swords, this is the next question. Non doctors listen to this podcast sometimes. They probably don't have a very big bleeding heart for the rich, quote, rich doctors who make over 400000 a year and, oh, they're not going to be able to do surgeries and yada, yada. But assuming these doctors are living within their means, they are probably going to be quite fine for a while. The person that I'm concerned about is the nurses and the support staff who work by the hour. What happens to them? Yeah, that's a real problem. You know, and I know a lot of people who've been furloughed already. And so I kind of worry about that too. I, I feel like that's where I see the corporatization of medicine as a challenge because the people they work for are not exactly taking the pay cut. Right. The, the physician, they're not working for doctors. They're working for accountants and finance people. And unfortunately, those are kind of just statistics on a page for the for corporations. Those are just law, you know, financial losses not familial losses, not, and I think that's where the communities are going to have to absorb that loss. And they're the real deliverers of care, right? Those are the people who are really caring for folks. So yeah, I agree. I think those are the people who do the work, you know, and at least care for patients, the direct care to the patient and they're at highest risk and they have the lowest pay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're the ones literally in the trenches and, um, yeah, there's going to be casualties, unfortunately. But again, those people are trying to feed their family. Most of us want to, at the end of the day, want to take care of our family and go home. Yeah. I mean, that's across cultures, boundaries. Most of us, no matter where we live, that's all we really want to do. And so in some ways, those people are doing the best they can for their families. And that 
they're putting themselves, I mean, it's the greatest act of love I could ever imagine. You're putting yourself in harm's way for someone who cannot thank you or pay you. That's pretty, that's pretty noble stuff. Right. Let's transition. Okay. Telehealth, chiropractors, physical therapists, primary care. I can see us all. Let's teach you some exercises. Right. Billy, what's your blood pressure been the last five days? Right. Okay. We're going to keep the medicine the same. I can't take your blood work right now, but let's just assume everything is, you know what I mean? They, they can do their job, I think. However, you, eh, I don't know. What can, what can you do? So I've actually switched my practice to telehealth completely in the last week. Okay. It's incredibly useful. I think it's going to be a major paradigm shift for how I practice medicine. I do need to physically examine patients, no doubt, but I can also screen imaging and look at patients and have them move around and know if they need to see me in the office. So that's how I'm using it right now. So instead of seeing every patient in the office, the patients who come to the office have a reason to be there, meaning they're either going to go to surgery or I need to follow up on something with them physically. I have patients that travel, you know, I have a patient travel three hours to see me the other day for a wound check. Not worth it. Just show, show me your, take your camera and put it to your back and let me see. Yeah, it seems really pretty easy. So I, I loved it. The patients, I ask them all to a person, how do you, what do you think about this? My patients range from 20 to 80 years old. So obviously the 20 year olds are going to be pretty, pretty easy with the technology. The 80 year olds really struggle with it. But at this time, they're happy on reaching out to try to contact them. And they know they're still in under someone's care emotionally, as it were. And I think that's just important. But yeah, I'm able to send patients links for exercises, right? Or I have some docs in my town, a chiropractor who's willing to see patients for adjustments and stuff and work around it. So I think it's going to make me more efficient. It's certainly going to lower my overhead. You know, I don't need to have a big office anymore. I can have one day of office. I can rent somewhere and be very uh, facile and move very quick. And that's going to give me a major competitive advantage in the marketplace, as opposed to if I'm working for a huge healthcare system to turn on a dime is impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Titanic couldn't move. That's why it hit what it hit. But if you're in a little dinghy, you can move pretty quickly. And so that's, I think, the advantage in the marketplace. If you can leverage technology, you're going to be in good position. I've seen some things on LinkedIn the last week or two. Oh, we're going to teach you how to take advantage of this new technology called telehealth. And I'm sitting there thinking, you should have switched to that a couple of weeks ago if you really needed to. So, But most of the people who switched are independent folks, private, and they quickly adapted to the technology in the market. They anticipated what was happening. In the United States, the reason it was never adopted was around billing, and they, un they, un they unwound those bills completely so you get paid to do it. That's what I was about to ask you. That's on a lot of people's mind is, can I build insurance? Is it just cash? Can I get the full rate that I was getting before? And maybe not. Maybe you get 30% less, right. but at least the, the, from the patient's point of view, the doctor said it's going to be this time. I call in. We take care of it. I don't have to wait right. in his office for three hours because he right. had an emergency pop up. And you just every day, you know, every Monday, I just call after call after phone call. Yeah, I think that's an effective way to do it. You can take one day and stack all your telehealth visits into that office on one day. Right now, stateside-wise for Medicare, we're getting the same exact rate of face-to-face -face telehealth visit for right now. I think they're going to probably look at that and say, is that a lower cost of care for them to deliver? And maybe give you a percentage of that. But even if it's pennies on a dollar, you can probably roll through some of those visits quicker and leave your time in the office for more productive time frame. And like you said, if, you, if you're if you able to pivot out of a high overhead 
right situation that is fantastic i just i kind of feel for these patients these doctors who own their clinics and they've got all that overhead there's gonna be a lot of real estate available for sale (laughs) future i have the feeling and for me from a medical standpoint it might be time to invest in something but the it's another investment market that may may open or you'll see more consolidation even in the independent side. Hey, can you time, I was talking to a doc today. You got timeshare space available? Yes, great. Well, maybe I can go look at it because I need to change my schedule. So for me, it's great because I only half a day as opposed to three half days or four half days. So it, it, I think it might help me personally, but I think a lot of people might start looking at their overhead a lot differently. Well, that is very promising, I think, to a lot of people who are here this Telehealth is available even for a spine surgeon. So like I always say, listen to what we just talked about and think about it and then try to implement it to your own clinic. What can you offer and what can you do so that you don't go broke and you're able to still help patients during this time? Uh, I mean, I look at this whole situation as um, the technology, Zoom is an example, or companies like that, team, you know, Microsoft Teams. Doxy. Yeah, Doxy Me. So I use Doxy Me and I love it, right? Totally um, HIPAA. Exactly. Completely HIPAA compliant. Change the way I'm going to. I mean, and I think that that's, um, by the way, I'm not being sponsored by any one of those companies I just named. So please. Me neither. But if you want to, let me know. <laughs> I, have no, I have no non-disclosures. But um, it just, it will change the nature of the way we communicate, period. I mean, I think where it's really going to be a game changer. So. Would you want to go back to the way it was now that you've experienced telehealth? No, I've been waiting for disruption for a while. So this is a pretty good opportunity for us to take advantage of it. I've had more people come out of the woodwork with different ideas about how we can push the needle forward and it's almost like there's no looking back. No, I think we were we were heading into a really it was in a, we were heading into the abyss mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily know if there was any open-mindedness around lowering costs for care and suddenly everybody's open-minded, you know, so yeah. it's out of desperation. You know, as a, as a chiropractor, we've really really slowed down on the in the progression of like the medical doctors that said, Oh, let's all get together, open a group, right, split right. costs, split revenue, split right, not revenue, right. but like marketing. And a lot of chiropractors don't do that. So now we're hearing things where maybe they might start doing that. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a great thing. Interesting. Yeah, it's really sad that we haven't really done that and come together. But y'all were doing that for a while and now maybe it's turning into we all just rent one building and I take Mondays, you take Fridays and we just kinda do this telehealth and just use it when we need it. So there's been some discussions I've heard from people talking about virtual medical models where there's medical MSO, the medical service organization with the, in the States corporate practice of corporate medicine across state lines. So, and then you get what happens is a bunch of independent people can come together, share resources and still have separate tax ID numbers, but share the back end or lower your, your total costs of overhead. And that only makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you want to definitely, share overhead costs if you can, always. Um, and if there's a way, like, so you're a chiropractor, I would say you're a um, musculoskeletal physician. Yeah. Um, I do surgery. Um, is there a way we can have synergies together? You know, um, right. and sure there is, you know, um, there's there's more than enough for everybody to eat. And, and, and is there a way that, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, the most entrepreneurial Physicians I've ever met are chiropractors. I mean, and it, it was out, out of necessity, out of necessity completely. I get that, but it's like you got to take your hat off to this whole profession that has survived basically on a, with a compass and a knife in the middle of nowhere and just really done well. And I just, I have a lot to learn. I mean, look, 
Uh, I think physicians have a lot to learn from everybody and everything, but uh, chiropractors really understand marketing and patient treatment better than anybody and cost for sure. There's no doubt. And, um, and if you think otherwise, then you're just not really looking at the whole picture. And there's a lot of kooky chiropractors though. And we've, there's a lot of kooky doctors too, man. So don't worry about it. We're locking them in though. Like we have actually reported a lot of people for putting out crazy things on Facebook and stuff right. like that. So right. when it's all said and done, who knows what will how this is going to play out, but we're the evidence based right. people are hoping that it'll stop some of these crazy things from getting all, out there so often. All of us need to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Across the board. Fantastic. Did we skip anything that was on your heart that you wanted to talk about? No, no. I was, I was open to talk about whatever you wanted to. I'd love to circle back and talk about pain generators one day. If you ever want to do something like that, I'd be happy to do that too. The whole, the whole, but that's up to you. I've got a few more minutes. If you do, if you have a, an angle that you wanted to, to flush out a little bit, we can do that. Well, I think the main pe- reasons people don't get better from spine surgery is there's no diagnosis. That's the bottom line. You need to have an anatomic diagnosis to drive treatment. More than just a bulge? Uh, correct. Bulge is something that happens when you're like on a high school date or something like that. That's, right. that's not a treatable problem. You know, It's good to hear. The bulge always makes me uncomfortable. I can't talk about that in front of patients. I get very nervous when they start talking like that. But yeah, it's, you don't treat the MRI. You treat the patient, right? And, and, that, and the symptoms have to correlate with uh, anatomic pathways, i.e. things that we know, like referred pain maps, trigger points, you know, dermatome maps, some know, something that we know. Otherwise, you know, you're potentially someone's revenue and it's not a patient. And that's really not what we want to do. You know Brian Rich, Dr. Brian Rich? No. Out of Oklahoma? No. He's doing a lot of RF and um, those little transmitters. Usually you'd put them in a spine and it would stop the spine pain, but now you can put them a at like... A cord stimulator. Yeah, but now you can do them in like peripheral nerves to like the the knee and all these kind of things. Yeah, do you do yeah. any of that? No, I haven't heard of that. I, I, I understand it. I've, actually, I have heard of it. It's not common practice, but yes, I can understand why peripheral stim would work. I think I want to get down to the causes and conditions. Like, why is the multifidi firing? That's really what it is. It the multifidi that's causing the back pain, or is it the posterior lung? Is it, or is it the spinous ligament, or is it the facet joint? Like, really get down to the causes and conditions. How does that change what you do? Blocks different nerves? Uh, no, like if it's multifidi, is there multifidi firing because their belly's too big? Do we need to lose a little weight? Do we need to flex? Do we need to work on your posture? Do we need to improve your psoas flexibility? Do we need to improve joint dynamics? Is it a spondylolisthesis that needs to be corrected? Do you have a malalignment? Do you have a nerve root compression? You know, or like that's get down to the root causes and conditions. Why did this COVID thing happen? Did someone sneeze in Wuhan? I mean, was there a problem? Somebody washed their hands or was there some other insidious thing that happened you know really not right now we're fixing the symptom but we're we're not at a cause so that's i'd like to try to get the causes that's awesome that's kind of what we were saying a lot of us were as well where we can go through the motions we can just turn you on your side and give you a side posture but why why what is the point right better diagnostics than you are the more you likely you can prescribe the right exercises right. and the treatment and then they actually get better and if they don't at least you know like hey it's probably not going to be this because this usually works on 90 percent of the people and it didn't work right. for you right right all right well doc this has been great on my end i really appreciate your time and willingness to come on the podcast for the, your first time ever and uh, right. hopefully 
we'll, we'll be able to disseminate this and get some good information out there so people can uh, calm their fears a little bit Wonderful. more. Wonderful. Oh, uh, do you have a webpage or anything like that that people can find you? I have a, let me see, I'll, I have a HTML for just my practice. I can send it to you. I don't have it on the top of my head. It's basically Dayton Neuros, <laughs> Dayton Neuros fine. There you go. Dayton, that's it. I'm not. I'm not that savvy, man. It's <laughs> Somebody's like, I got a web page. I don't know. I don't know what. Yeah, it I don't is. use it. <laughs> right. All right. Another great interview has ended. While you're on your phone, click that review button. Write up a nice review for me. Five stars, if you could. As everyone says in the industry, it'll help other people to find us when we have enough rankings. Not to mention, I'll mention you and your review on an upcoming episode. If you follow me at all on Instagram, you know you only get one link. So I use a link tree. And so it's a doctorsperspective.net slash links with an S. And that's going to give you everything you need to know. The top episodes of 2017 and 2018, the podiatry series, dentist, acupuncture series, holiday 2017, financial series, how to write a review, how to support the show, like buying a cup of coffee getting swag, like t-shirts, the Today's Choices Tomorrow's Health book, that's the blueprints for better health, exercise, picking food correctly, and financial. And then, of course, bundle packs, which can get you the no-needle acupuncture book, 40 common conditions, including the electric acupuncture pin, at a great deal. The resources page has some of the products that I like. It's uh, affiliate style, so if you buy something from them, I get a piece of that. Just like on the show notes pages, if you buy a book from clicking that link, I get a small piece of that as well. So I really appreciate that. Things like Screencast-O-Matic, PureVPN, Missing Letter, JLab Speakers, ProLone Edge or Hawk Grips. Uh, once again, if you do need any coaching on how to improve some of your blood work, drop weight, and the ProLone Diet, Fast Mimicking Diet, 5-Day Plan, let me know as well as if you just need some coaching, whether it's health, whether it's marketing, whether you need some practice growth, etc., reach out. Facebook, Justin Trosclair, MCC. Of course, at a doctorsperspective.net on the top right, you got all the social media icons that you can imagine. Click your favorite and reach out. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tell a friend, pass it along. You can go to .net slash listen. It's just that easy. It'll open up right in your app. And don't forget, I appreciate you. Listen, critically think, and integrate. See you on the mini-sodes on Thursdays and Saturdays. Hope you're enjoying those. I'm definitely having fun summarizing these podcasts in less than 10 minutes for you. You get the nuggets without having to waste your time. Have a great week. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.